So welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. I hope you're well. hope you've been good. I'm sat here in the uh, the living room of Lime, the Limehouse podcast HQ with Rosie sat by the by the laptop, just monitoring everything. And she's she's good at it. She's she's looking focused. Uh, she's asleep. Um, I got queer eye on on the right on pause. It's been good actually. No pause, no no pun intended with the. The pause thing, but uh, yeah, it's been it's this good series, isn't it? This this uh, this one, they've had some really 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 great people on the show. It's uh, some genuine heartfelt moments, and and it's far more wide ranging. I think if you haven't watched Queer Eyes, well worth a go. Really awesome. God, Jonathan's amazing. I love that man. Oh my god, he's so fucking amazing. Anyway, this week I've got Dave Lucas, the one and only. So. What a character! What an absolute sweetheart! He's someone that I was—I um, sort of like—I bumped into on Instagram via our previous guest, Livia Samoka, and I was like, "God, he's got some amazing pictures. He's clearly been places, done things. He—he's a fixer. No, he doesn't kill people. He doesn't kill people. He's—he kind of fixes problems for people." when they're out and about on I want to say like something essentially what Livia did when she went out to the conga she she you know she the crew needs someone to look after them right to plan their days to do the safe the safety aspect of things kind of like a consultant I suppose um, an expedition guide and he he's so he, he's he's done things Let's let's put it that way. He's done things so we don't have to leave our couch. So he just, oh my god, it's unbelievable. And and yeah, he's done rock climbing since he was a kid at university, and then it all kind of like grew out of that into this huge, great life that he's done, like going across the world, so many different countries, so many different experiences. And we talk a bit about, well, we talk a lot about that. It's a wonderful conversation. I think what I got from it was like a personal opportunity to talk about travel and then also to talk about you know what happens behind the scenes on those documentaries we see. You know, how do those camera crews get what they get? How do those journalists perform day after day after day without having any real experience of going into the the wilds? Well they they're able to do it because of people like Dave. And it's that is fascinating to me. So he's seen some shit. We talk about it. He's a lovely guy. You will. You will 100% enjoy this. But before we get into it, just got a few minutes to talk about this week that's been. It does feel a little bit like the old days of the podcast where we were talking a lot, a lot, a lot about the troubles in this country in and around Brexit. Windrush, what have you, and doesn't seem like things have moved on as a as a country since 2016. Since 2015, you could say, when the European Union, that whole debate started, and all this ces- this cesspit was was dredged again, and all the vileness that this country is capable of was brought up. And 
you just really realize once you scratch the surface there's a whole bunch of problems that this country has and has never truly dealt with and and it's now there and I, I guess I don't know how you feel but I, I feel emotionally drained from it I don't really I'm glad to bring this conversation to you with Dave because it's it's just a world away from all of that it's a great opportunity to just forget about it but I did want to touch base with you and just see how you're dealing with it because I'm struggling with it big time um the, the coronavirus is one thing and then George Floyd is another I'm glad that it's given the opportunity for us to all start talking about it and assess who we are the things that we may or may not have done in, in the past how we can further ourselves how can we help the community we're in but it, it, it's very daunting and it's terrifying man because you don't you just don't know where it's going to end and and who's going to lead us out of this mess and it's terrifying frankly but yeah but look on a positive note it's a, we've got a good week ahead of us it's going to be great mixed weather good weather good weather You've got an opportunity to listen back to previous episodes. You know, last week, Blaine's episode was fantastic. Blaine Harrison from the Mystery Jets. I absolutely loved every second of that. That was such a great conversation. You've got, prior to that, you've got the Soy Dog Foundation. I talked talk to Jill. Oh, sorry, God, that's terrible. I talked to John and Donna about Jill and that whole charity and everything from start to finish and how... That, that story is deep, it's profound. So you've, you've got opportunities there. If you haven't listened to those, go check it out. And as always, if you, if you want to check out my short film, please do. It's on somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. Somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. It's a short film. It's dark, it's funny, it's blah, 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 it's blah, blah, blah. But if you, you, know, if you want to change your scenery, then please go visit that website and see what you, see what you think. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm more on just Dave just quickly because he's got a fucking fascinating website. And you, just a little bit of history on what he's done and stuff and also what he can do and what have you. So that you can go, you can go to that website. It's davelucas.net. He's got some amazing pics up there as well. So yeah, just, just check it out. Um, good Lord, he's even got, he's got a blog. And let me tell you, when people like him who have actually been there and done it, that's worth, that's worth reading, let me tell you. Paul Samoka. Uh, Simhoka Paul Salapak that I interviewed just the other day uh, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist he's coming on the show soon that that's the shit right there guys so look after yourself stay safe don't believe the bullshit adopt a dog go walking in the sun maybe have a maybe have a have a shower and use that special little shower cream you bought yourself Treat yourself. Go on. Run yourself a bath. Spend a little bit longer in the bath. Exfoliate. It's important. Is it important? I don't know. Exfoliate. It's important. And exfoliate all the vileness in the world. Okay, look after yourself. Bye-bye. Quite, quite a journey. Do you, do you want to get into it? Yeah, delve in. Yeah, yeah. Del- del- delve in, mate. Um, I suppose the most not pertinent question, but the most obvious one for me is: 
how did it all like this because you, you've done obviously you've done been to not every nook and cranny in the world but compared yeah. to most people it yeah. seems like that when when did you where do you get that taste for it like the the traveling yeah. like i mean i suppose for those of those of the for your for your listeners i mean just to start at the end and then and then, yeah. and then move backwards i guess like so i've been really fortunate you know i've traveled to just just shy of 100 countries i reckon and spent on expeditions i think it's somewhere around if you squeeze all the expeditions together it's about 76 months of expeditions and then i've lived abroad as well so i've had a really good dose and experience abroad and have been many many adventures and yeah. um i guess you can describe my job as today as i i sort of look after people keep them safe and happy in remote and austere conditions so they can achieve what they're there to do that's pretty much what i do N- normally for tv shows that's how myself and Liv got to know each other yeah but um if you told that to like a 10 year old dave lucas speaking myself <laughs> speaking to, about myself in the third party here now but it's that far away that I can almost warrant that. Yeah, I don't no, no, think no, he would definitely. have believed that this was going to be his life. It's, it's epic. Yeah, it's been exactly what he, we we both wanted. It's, yeah. 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 Would it have been like, can I can I see like a Dave a, a little Dave Lucas like in a stream picking out newts and uh, looking at frog sport and going, oh, what's that? Or That's is exactly that is that? Right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So he's having a, like a pair of wellies on. A little pair of shorts and a and a sort of anorak that was passed down from my sisters. And in fact, a lot of my stuff was passed down from my sisters, which is a little bit embarrassing. But yeah, and I said them run around streams with a little pen knife that I used to cut myself on far too often, and a stick and a catapult in my pocket. Yeah, and just get really, really muddy. And that that was my childhood. Yeah, yeah, you got that yeah. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's like just general boys, isn't it? Like, I mean, just general. I mean, I, I remember at school there used to be a stream, and it was a, a natural spring, and I, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was like a certain area of the school, and it was way, way, way out of bounds. Do you remember that? Like at school, it used to be called out of bounds or something. <laughs> you, you, yeah, fucking hell, you weren't allowed there. Jesus, you went out of bounds. But I'm sure all the teachers at the time were like, "Why the fuck are they calling it out of bounds? It's not. It's just over there. It's like, yeah. oh, just let them, just let them call it out of bounds." But there was like this stream, and we used to like dig little brooks and stuff and mm. splash around in it, and mm. and it was dam. just so awesome. Yeah, dam. Yeah, put a dam dams. up. You all know, about dams. all about all about making the dams. All about those dams. Yeah. Um, so like, when did you, when did you realise that there's like, I suppose it would be like, when did you fall in love with the outside world? You know, like the, uh, the, I don't the, think mis- the mystery. I moment like that. I think I was very fortunate in, um, we had a TV as kids. There's this tiny little black and white thing. And I remember a couple of programmes that I used to watch, but then um, apparently, so the story goes, is that me and my sisters used to quarrel a bit too much about who was going to watch what. And so then one day, um, my mum decided to just chuck it down the stairs and break it. So then there wouldn't be any arguments anymore. And so that, so we didn't have a TV as kids. So then that's, we just went outside yeah. a lot more. And that's pretty legit. And went out for walks and just, just enjoyed out, outside. And so I don't think there was a, a point where I fell in love with outdoors. It was just that, that that's just who I was when I was yeah. a kid. And our holidays used to be sort of all squeezing into a very small, uh, what was it, a Renault 6. And all driving as a family down to the south of France for weeks on end, paddling in rivers and canoeing and just walking in the hills, walking Pyrenees, walking the mountains. And so it was, so it's it was like, just part of me, I think. 
yeah, like a so like a slow drip feed of that sort of the outdoors. Yeah, I I guess that was just yeah, it was just me. Yeah, from, yeah. from nurture, I'd I'd sort of become become that sort of outdoorsy little kid. So your your mum and dad were they like uh, kind of like focused on 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 the outdoors? Because I know that my my I live I used to live in the countryside, and our garden used to back onto a field. Um, and we used to the the local farm used to let us go into his woods, and we'd we'd make tents and you know camps and and all that kind of shit. And it would be it would be just like looking back on it now, just how lucky we were to have that. Yeah. yeah. And and that, yeah. and then we'd go walking the South Downs, perhaps um, me and my dad. So it was a slow thing, and then we went to, you know to actually I was saying the same thing to live. Like I was saying how we we went up to Scarfell together. Um, obviously that's that's great but mm. what path what what path did you take to like end up going hey you know what i'm gonna do because i know yeah. you're into rock climbing so and family always sort of we camped we went on long walks my dad dad's well into his bird watching and so we often sort of went out and bird watched together and did all of that and so it was a very easy step across and I guess when I was a teenager, I was trying to find like the next thing to do, a little bit bored, kicking kicking my heels, a little bit bored around the house, what do I do? And me and my mate, Jack, we found that in the sort of the leisure centre, in the centre of the Isle of Wight, at the end of a basketball court, it was this really sort of basic climbing wall into the bricks where someone had just drilled in a few climbing holes at the end of the basketball court. And I think it was every Wednesday, a couple of people from the Isle of Wight all met up and they just climbed a bit. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Go along, and met a um, met a, uh, another mate, and then we went climbing in North Wales, and it sort of snowballed really quickly. I suddenly realised, yeah. hang on, climbing's freaking amazing. Climbing's a yeah. really good way to keep fit, really good way to exercise, and a really good way to have fun. And it's a bit edgy, a little bit risky. Very, very edgy. Oh my god! I reckon if you know, rewind five years when I'm I'm single. And I could say I've, I'm a rock climber. Oh my god! I reckon most yeah. people would find that pretty cool and sexy. No, I don't know. Climbers are really geeky. <laughs> climbers are really geeky people. <laughs> Come on, like buff and it's dangerous. You know, I'm sure that's yeah. not why you did it, but yeah. Well, that's very, 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 very good. You think that way, but um, yeah, we're a little bit more geeky than that. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, so that was when I was like six, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, okay. Climbing. And then um, after A levels, I didn't want to rush up into university straight away. And there was this outdoor center in the North Pennines that was doing a sort of like outdoor instructor training program. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, why not jump, jump on that? So I spent a year teaching climbing, kayaking, canoeing, sort of outdoor sports. So you were aged like 16, 17 and you were starting to teach people? No, a little bit later. So end of A level. So I'm I'm an August kid, so I'm I'm, I'm young for my young for my year at school. Oh when are you um, when you when's your birthday? Sixth of August. Okay. I'm twenty ninth. Okay, that's interesting. I I thought you know, that's that's good. August yeah. people are very clever, very clever people. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean even at that age, like so it's that's that's pretty in, that's pretty Yeah, intense. so when I was like eighteen, eighteen yeah. I was teaching groups. Yeah. Yeah, go on, and 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 then it just would you and say like you're a, a natural like, attack? Yeah, so I started training more and more, but it wasn't really until I went to uni that I realised that I love climbing because it was a really good route to have adventures and a really yeah. good way to go off and travel. I wasn't much 
was I was a decent climber. I was all right. I trained and I got I got I got pretty strong, as climbers would say. But I just wanted to see what was around the next corner more. I really yeah. loved the idea of going off to a part of the world that was unkind and to yeah. be able to explore. Yeah. So is is that like a common uh, parlance in like the climbing fraternity? Is it is it sort of like the, the you have like the desire as it were to to go out and find those places that have been unclimbed before and and yeah and i guess so there, there's often this phrase banded around called the golden age of climbing it's like oh imagine being a climber around in the 50s or being that climber that discovered yosemite and first climber to ever look upon those walls in the states which is so famous now and it's sort of like people sort of like oh it would have been, it would, it would have been great but those days are gone and they just go off, open up a guidebook and look at what existing routes are on climb. But I think that if you took those climbers off and gave them a, a bit of rock that was unclimbed at a relatively easy grade and, and it wasn't that difficult, then most climbers would be like, freaking hell, this is perfect. This is great. This is this is yeah. what I love, like forging their own paths up cliffs and making their yeah. own decisions on where the route should go and not just following someone else's description. I think yeah, most because... climbers would, would, would be down with that. I mean, but what, because, what I would... but because sort of climbing, it's sort of a lot of the UK. I mean, there, there are still parts of the UK which are unclimbed, especially up in Scotland. Or if you're sort of climbing in to do a new route in sort of well-climbed areas, you've got to be climbing really, really hard to be able to put up a new route now because most, most has been climbed. And yeah. so I think climbers just, the majority of climbers say in the UK are climbing existing routes and they, and they don't really think too much about putting up new ones. Yeah, I mean, because if we say we're on a train and we start this conversation and you tell me that you're a climber, I don't know anything about you, then my immediate reaction, I think most people's reaction would be, fuck me, isn't that terrifying? Like, for example, I, I you know, I'd have, I have a reoccurring dream about being mm-hmm. on a, a side of a, a cliff and just stuck mm-hmm. there looking down and there's like a thousand foot drop and yeah. I'm paralyzed with fear. Yeah. What, what drive, what, dri- I mean, that's dangerous. There's no, there's no getting away from that. What, dri- yeah. what drive drives you? It is, it is more risky. It is more risky, but a lot of those risks you can control. You can, like with climbing, you're climbing up and as you sort of hook your, hook your rope into a wall and then climb up high, if you fell off there, you'd then sort of pendulum down the double the length above the last time you clipped your rope in. Yeah. So if you look at a bit of rock above you and realise there's nowhere to clip your rope into, then it's obviously going to have very high consequences if you did fall. But then if it's a very easy climb and you're not going to fall, then you can sort of weigh up those risks. So you can control a lot of the risks. Okay. And you can sort of make it safer than people perceive it to be, to start with. But you're right. I mean, it's it's more risky than, say, walking. Yeah. Just a little bit. I mean, But I I mean, you can get in deep water. I've been in, I think I've had three moments in life when I've been climbing and I've been really, really thankful to get out of it. With, can you, can you, with my can you life elaborate? Without breaking my legs. Yeah. Yeah. That's been, that's can been, that's been quite... Can you like elaborate on those moments? Cause I, oh, I'm as, as a, a bit terrified. Right, of... Sort of layman sort of, so, so <laughs> when was that? 2000? So what was 20 years ago? Blimey. Um, <laughs> me and a bunch of mates went to Greenland and we, went out there and climbed for a month and made a base camp around these boulders. No one else around at foot of a glacier took two boats to get us in there. Um, there's been a Slovenian team in there climbing before us. Apart from that, it was, it was just a bunch of lads. We took a whole, like a homebrew kit and boots 
because <laughs> we were there for a month. <laughs> it takes a month to brew these kits. I remember having then, I think we had like 80 pints of really weak beer at the end of the trip to drink. Holy shit. So we were there and like, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was cool. Big walls, like these big granite walls go up about 800 metres. And so we were looking to like put up new routes. And we're only the second sort of rope length, the second pitch up off the ground. And I was climbing for a mate called Max and um, looked at this really good, like very featured, featured, I mean, and it looked like there were lots of places to hold on to. And I'd gone along this crack, a sort of foot traverse, my foot was in the crack, my hands were going along the wall and I was going horizontal away from where my mate was. And at this point, because I'm leading, there's no where my rope's clipped into. So yeah. then I take a peg, a pit on, which is like a spiky metal thing, and I slam it into the crack of my feet and clip my rope into And I think it's pretty good. So if I fell there, I should be good. I'm not going to fall and hit a ledge below. And from where I was stood, there was a ledge about 15 metres below me. But then I had to climb up. So as soon as I made that first step up and I sort of lost that ledge where I was standing on, I realised I couldn't find it and I couldn't step up. So I was committed. I had to go up. I couldn't come down. And I realised all those sort of nice features that looked like ledges from the bottom were just rounded lumps and bumps. And it was all friction. There was, wasn't like a nice edge, like a step or right. a lump or anything positive to hold on to. It was all just friction. So I just sort of, you have these climbing shoes on which are made of rubber, a bit, like a bit like a climbing, t- like a, a car tyre. I've seen those, yeah. And just hoping, hoping that your feet, feet don't slip. See, if your feet slip, your hands aren't holding onto anything. So you just skim away. And so uh, I was about 17 metres up from where I left that traverse. So if I fell now, I was going to hit that ledge. There wasn't, there wasn't going to be any, the rope doesn't matter anymore. The rope's just part of the part. It's, it's, it's not going to catch me. And um, and it was getting pretty pretty edgy. And there was this one move I had to had to make where I there was this up by, above my left knee was this little sort of nubbin of rock, which if you sort of like, I don't know, uh, tied four matches together and cut them and that sort of piece of the, where the four matches meet like the cross section yeah yeah there's a crystal of rock sticking out about the size of that so i thought okay i'm gonna have to put my foot on it so my left foot was on that and all i had to do was stand up on it do like a one hour like a one leg push-up because there was nothing else to hold on to and i was i was on it i must have been on it for a few minutes it felt like ages but realistically it's probably in about three minutes four minutes looking down with my mate Max and he was just like eyes like poof, like this just watching me knowing that if that foot popped I was I was I was going to be fucked my legs would be very broken or I would die and we were no one was coming to rescue us we had a sat phone but still it'd been days and days and someone's coming to rescue us and um but I had to do it because I couldn't yeah. come down because there's nowhere to come down from there's nowhere to clip the rope into to come down so I was stuck and so I did it and I sort of edged up and I remember a whole weight being on this tiny little crystal and then Shit. coming across and then finding this sort of other stuff that came up higher and I got to the top and I was just sat on this ledge and I just shouted, screaming out at nothing. Nothing was there. Like my voice was going across the valley into a glacier and so the moraine beyond, but it's just this, this, um, this outpouring of emotion and tension God. that had built up from not, yeah, realising that I was still alive. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's very raw. And then, and like there are there are other climbers that probably have this way more often and can bottle that emotion. But that was just yeah, yeah I was very, very pleased to Mate, that, that that is something. Yeah, I mean you learn... sweat when I can tell that story. It's like climbers yeah. when they're on like doing sketchy climbs, your, your palms sweat or something, you use chalk. I think you're that. always 
well, you're just reminded right you're just reminded of yeah. of, of, of of that moment I, I mean I can't because I know crystals obviously diamonds what have a very 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 strong but like putting your entire yeah, life yeah no not in granite in granite it's sort of like they, they can crunch they, they can crunch it depends on the quality of the rock yeah. yeah, yeah, you haven't really got time to take out a, like a microscope and, and examine it. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Oh, just wait yeah. a second here, guys. Yeah. Oh my yeah. lord! So I mean, like, I presume that you've probably maybe had some experiences with people that haven't been so lucky, or um, yeah, yeah. So as you, especially um, people that get into alpine climbing, where there's sort of more um, there's more factors against you: the weather, snow, avalanches, ice high mountains altitude all that sort of stuff is against you here's some very very sad stories um so yeah. i didn't get into that so I'm, I, i've just only ever sort of rock climbed i've done a bit of alpine and high himalayan stuff but normally yeah. mainly just just climbing and God. yeah things go wrong yeah and i've lost a lost a few friends now mainly from like rock fall loose yeah. rock where rocks have just fallen on people and or cut ropes and accidents and it's it's easy to happen i guess you it's just a, it's odds isn't it it's just sort of you do it I, enough, eventually something will happen i mean it's, yeah it's, it's a law of averages i suppose but i i just yeah. wonder when you're you know because extreme sport and extreme challenges it's learning how to focus your mind and, and learning to 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 go through your training and everything you know it's kind of um i suppose i suppose i'm drawing a little bit there from army training <laughs> not mine obviously but you know what they hear you hear about in, mm -hmm. in drills they just remember your training remember your training um yeah. but when you're on the cliff face literally the cliff face um what is it was it like in terms of that what's your inner monologue what's do you have like a, a mantra that you're telling yourself to, to focus yeah um, often i mean when it's easy and nice you can sort of be humming a song be like, yeah enjoying it beautiful it's lovely but when it goes a bit dark um yeah you sort of Go, go into yourself a bit and say all these sort of things about, oh, please get me out of here. I promise not to do this, this and this. I mean, you could do that, but I think you just, you just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a hard climber. If you look on Instagram and see all these films now about what's being done, these people are in like such a different league, such a different league. And if you go to most sort of climbing gyms now, because I'm working so much, and I don't have a t chance to train at the moment. I don't really climb anymore. Cli yeah. Climbing was almost a, a thing of the past for me. It's, it's not, it's still there, but it's almost is. Yeah, I know. And so, so there are many people out there that do some phenomenal, phenomenal things, like yeah. way off the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you see them like... Um... I have I have seen a program I can't remember what it was now, but someone that yeah, it's a documentary of someone uh, uh, doing doing that, and but they're they're doing it without any any form of rope, nothing. That's pretty solo. Just... The one that won the Oscar, Alex Honnold. Right, and it, yeah. it's fucking yeah, insane. Exactly. It's it's off yeah. it's off the hook. Like yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, phenomenal. <sighs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. I mean, le leaving the rock climbing to one side, I I am super interested about how you got into i mean in terms of like a line not necessarily a lineal order or anything like that but a linear yeah. order rather i just how, how I did guess, you get in I guess, uh, like i mean i come on to this i mean you always like to from 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 listening to your previous podcast i know you like to hang it on like a pivotal point in my life yeah yeah like a moment like, and I'll, stuff like I'll that i'll come on to that later but i think that university i was there and i realized that as I said, like I, I 
I wanted to get into climbing more to have adventures and to travel and having adventures it's all about it's all about that for me if I can be on my deathbed with a massive bank of stories and I can keep a whole load of people in a room like interested by these stories then I've, I've done it I've done it right I don't yeah, know how much money's in the bank if I have a bank of stories then I'm in a really good position and I guess it was I realized that at university that that's that's what I wanted so I was actually going to do a PhD I was, I'd applied for a PhD and it'd been accepted but I was looking at it going like well, do I really want to and it was in marine biology I was going to study sea mammal research up in Aberdeen and it was do I really want to go into research or lecturing because that's what it's going to be really and I was like oh I don't know was the answer. And I was like, okay, if I just go climbing and I just do stuff I love, I reckon I can amass enough experience that someone eventually will pay me. And that that decision, I guess, sort of paved the way later on for me. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot. It didn't just happen overnight. There's um, After I made that decision, then I, I climbed as much as I could. I went abroad and climbing expeditions as much as I could. But in between time, I was fortunate enough to have a mate who who ran bars in London and whenever I was home I'd give her a call and, and she'd give me a job and so I'd I'd have the months in the UK just working in bars in London which is great fun yeah great. and I'd save the money and then go away again and come back and save the money and go away again so I'd like just living out of bags and floors living in broom cupboards I remember this one I, job where I, was, it, I was on the floor and I put like my camping mat down and if I was lying on the floor you couldn't open the door to the room because it was like it literally was a room cover to just enough space for me to lie down in it and the radiator leaked next to me and you'd get wet every night but I was living for free in London earning money to go climbing again and that and that was that yeah yeah awesome like because I know plenty of people like that I've worked with quite a few gardeners that are obsessed with India and they're just like working to save to get out there um for the for the british british winter which i i completely understand having done a little bit of traveling in nepal and uh, thailand and it's it's you feel like you're cheating the system when you go to warmer climbs in in the in the winter in the british winter but so like when what was the first country you fell in love with and realized oh that's a tricky one and you're gonna ask um there are it's very very hard to replicate a trip if you go away and have an amazing time in Africa somewhere or Southeast Asia. I think it's it's made amazing, not because of just the place, it's made amazing because of the incidental moments, the food you eat, the people you meet, those weird little moments that would only happen that one off time. And that's yeah. what makes the trips amazing. And so then I think uh, I've been to, let's say some countries more often than others. And I go back because it's, it's more likely I'm gonna have one of those trips, which is amazing. But um, I think it's really hard to, to just pin down exactly one country, which is which is the best place. To go yeah, to. I mean, I know exactly what you mean. I suppose what for me would, I guess what I'm driving at is kind of like it doesn't necessarily have to be, because I, I would say like the first time I really really went abroad was to Nepal to Kathmandu when I was 18, and um, yeah, it just it opened my eyes. I was lucky my sister was there, and so I'm a very anxious person anyway. I get homesick of a drop of a hat, but my sister was there, so I I loved the. Now I've been to many countries since, but I would say that was my first love, you know, and then that, that there, 
and not, not, it's not like nothing could beat that but there's certainly yeah. like elements of that seeing the Himalayas for the first time for fuck's yeah. sake you know Fishtail yeah. Mountain and in, outside of Pokhara do you know what I mean like oh yeah. my god yeah I yeah, Um, I where was I I was in university still and I saw a uh, an advert for an expedition it was an expedition was getting together and they wanted climbers to go away to climb in Africa and you'd pay for your place and it was sort of like an overland trip but for climbers so I went to Kenya for five weeks and um, I met this guy um, and he through that trip and then the subsequent trip, which was we were drive, we drove from London to Hong Kong for five and a half months climbing. <laughs> Wicked. And through the success of that and sort of my, my involvement, he asked me if I wanted to um, guide a trip like around the world for three years and we were going to drive the length of every continent. And so the, the first leg of it, as you'd say, was from London to Cape Town for about a year. And it was, as you drive down through the Middle East, we went through Syria into Jordan and then um, across to Egypt. And it was in the sort of Sinai Peninsula, I guess, would be my country, would be my place. Because it was in there where, like, you, you just, it's such a pure style of travel and climbing where you, you're in the mountains. So you know where the Sinai, like, Red Sea, so Dahab, Sharm El Sheikh, they're like the touristy sort of dive resorts. But if you go inland, okay. then the mountains there, where so Mount Moses, Ten Commandments, think of all that. So you're up in those mountains, granite towers of rock around you. And um, I met this Bedouin guy, and he was like, uh, um, he was like to me, oh, I'd love to learn to climb. And I looked sort of behind his shoulder, and I saw his camel, and I was like, well, I'd love to learn to ride a camel. So you were like, yeah, let's do it then. So I, I took the climbers I was guiding. And we went for a couple of weeks down through down through the mountains towards Sharm. And it was like looking at that sort of the potential of how much rock there was. The unclimbed potential was incredible. But not just that, but just sort of tying all your kit on the back of a camel and heading off into unknown areas where you could just turn a corner and there could be this incredible lump of rock. You'd be like, look at this, it's perfect. So you'd, you'd just tie up your camels, pull all your kit off, make a fire, you'd cook over the fire, you'd sleep in the sand. We had some, probably had some, a few bottles of whiskey with us. And we'd put <laughs> up, the next day you'd just put everything back on a camel and carry on climbing, carry on moving. So I guess that the country I fell in love with, to answer your question, is Egypt, but specifically the CNI Desert. God. Yeah. Oh my God. That is such a picture you've painted there. Like, I absolutely love that. I yeah. think there's um an awesome... There was an awesome couple that were kayaking uh, around Pakistan, the um, and and everything, and and how on un, you know untravelled that country is in in recent years because of all the troubles in the world and how much people are missing, and you know we can't help it, it's war, civil war, and everything. But it uh, it just you know when you said earlier that you just decided to pack up, not just decided, but you you know you drove to Hong Kong mm. from London. I remember bumping into a guy I was doing some some work for in Fulham really old guy he was like that he was like right mate you, you're a gardener aren't you I like your van I like your van yeah yeah and then one thing led to another we started talking about his, his life and he was like yeah well me and my mate we've got this transit and we drove to India you know I'm all that it was back in the 70s so you know you could do that sort of thing back now you know back then but you can't do that now and I was like oh hold the fucking phone do you know what I mean oh my yeah. what is that like to get into a, a car and just drive a, literally halfway across yeah. the world yeah it shrinks the world it makes the world smaller it sort of joins yeah. the dots. You know, it's like in London where you just 
if you just travel by tube and you just go in a hole, you come out and you come out another exit somewhere, you don't join the dots. But if you start yeah. walking through London, you realise actually maybe it's not that big or you, you see how it all fits together. And yeah. it's like that when you drive around the world, you suddenly realise, well, if, I suppose, if a panda wanted to, it could walk all the way to London because it's all connected. It's all, it's all one. Yeah. We are just one world and it's, it's a beautiful thing to realise that yeah. these sort you- of fictitious state boundaries that we we drawn all over the place are just fictitious and it's it's just yeah. one chunk of rock and one chunk of land and we're all on it together yeah it's how those sort of cultures slowly change or suddenly change in some aspects but just melt together until you're you're right on the opposite side of the world and so it sort of pulls apart it's, it's incredible yeah yeah no no it, it is man it's it is it is mind-blowing and if you find yourself thinking down that you go down that rabbit hole beautiful as it is it, it can kind of like the simple living in that simplistic idealistic world is 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 great it's just when especially when you're traveling you can really take yourself out of of that that the mindset of normality schedules and what have you yeah. job blah 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 you go you go traveling all that goes out the window and you come back home and for a good week or two you're like it's like coming back from glastonbury for fuck's sake mm-hmm. after a week you know yeah. and then you just sat sat in your old world and you go oh god get me back get me back i mean mm-hmm. what out of all those all the traveling that you did what was like what do you re- you reckon what do you reckon you learned like the most? Like, what do you, did you did you teach your soul the most out of all that all that traveling, all those experiences? Professionally, it's a lot of managing people. I think yeah. if you can learn people and what people need and how to manage people, then it's my position as a guide on those trips would be much easier. And it was a really val- valuable lesson for me to take on in future life, um, but. I suppose it's a reassuring lessons that humans are beautiful species. And in general, most humans out there are incredibly nice and lovely. And it's only a few dicks in the world that ruin it for the rest. But the news being the news, the news likes to focus on those negative stories and those dicks. And, and so it makes it seem much, much worse. Mm. Um, and along those same lines as well, it's in general, many of the countries in the world, almost all of them are beautiful places to travel to you just perceive the risks to be higher because all the stories that you hear are negative stories. Yeah. And so I think the the lessons there is that trust, trust in humanity because it's incredible. And also when you hear that something is a little bit, a little bit risky or you perhaps think, okay, why am I going to go to Iraq? Isn't Iraq really dangerous? Don't take that as as, as, as written, look into it further, look into those reasons why it's somewhere risky. Why does someone say that? And you often find actually it's not, it's not that bad at all. And it's actually a, a safe place to travel to and a beautiful mm-hmm. place to travel to, not just safe, but incredible. And all those yeah. sort of perceived ideas of, of what it sh- could be like uh, are just false and are driven through media. Yeah. That, I, I like. So facing down your fears a little bit then and you're questioning your fear, your inner fears a little bit more. Yeah, so not not taking my perceived idea of risk as as, as said, question it, yeah. Yeah, question. definitely. Yeah. Question question your reality. Because um, like, so obviously like we've met via Liv um, yeah. and 
could you could you explain to me what a fixer is? Because in my mind, that is someone who carries a fucking massive gun and is just going to kill people for money. Like, <laughs> okay, so on. So for the job with Liv, so that was for Extreme Tribe um, Last Pygmy. Yeah. In in that particular job, we were a very small team, so I did the recce with her. She she mentioned in the podcast that she went out there beforehand to get permission from the tribe, and so I went with her there. Uh, with uh, an anthropologist and a, and a director. And because that's a really small team. And so what I, the, the position I was filling there was really as a expedition guide. So I was sort of, or location manager, or you could, you could call it fixer. So you go in there and you help solve the transport, accommodation, food. Um, uh, if things go wrong, what you're going to do. See if you have to hire hire any local staff or support doing that and then also as a medic so then if someone did hurt themselves or someone did have six jiggers around their toenail who was going to pull those out etc etc and so that's really what i was doing for that role right so hang on just to pick you up there what what you so you're going to local like how do you would you do just go into a local town and, and talk to the local like you know bill bob Jenny and go, hey, we need fucking muscle. Yeah, pretty much. Sometimes I've done exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I'll come on to another story after we've left Congo in a second. But um, it's there are two most important things in expeditions and travel is food and local knowledge. Don't ever, ever scrimp on food and don't ever ignore local knowledge. If you do those two things, you're, on, you're, you're in a really, really good position. And so in Congo, we... We had a few pointers. Uh, we met a couple of people and they sort of um, recommended others. And we took we took sort of locals with us. So from the sort of the, the forestry town, Pokola, someone came with us from there who spoke Benjeli and, and then um, also French. So we were able to translate across the board. And you just sort of get a feel for people and you get a feel for them and then they recommend other people. You get a feel for that and you learn pretty learn um, you, you, sorry you learn pretty quickly what's bullshit and what's not and then you just go with it and you go with that yeah. and that comes from experience knowing when to I was knowing when to just go yeah you're good you're solid gold we're going to keep you dude exactly you've got you've got to have a bullshit ra- radar right you've you can't afford to not have a good radar on that yeah, yeah. and you can just ask a couple of questions and, and sort of suss that out pretty quickly a lot of the time yeah yeah and so when you've got that strong team around you and those locals that know the area, then you just hold on to them. Don't let them go because they're they're solid gold. It's all yeah. about local local knowledge. And how are you dealing with all that responsibility? Because you do have clearly have a fuck ton. Because we're talking about areas that are pretty unconnected from like the main the main highways of and byways, uh, like you know hospitals for one example. Mm. I mean, how are you how are you dealing with that responsibility? A lot of planning. A lot, a lot of planning. So there's a whole load of boring stuff that um, we do back home, first of all. And the company that uh, I freelance for, Secret Compass, for that job, um, we sit down and and do risk assessments that are like 60 pages long, and then safety plans, and then all the other documents, medical plans, and then incident plans, all of those come out of it. You get put down this very, very concise bit of paperwork that you know that if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do about it? 
And then out of all of that, at the end, you can see this sort of residual risk layer. You can see like, what are the risks you just can't get rid of? What, what are the what are the dangers that I need to go and talk to Liv about? Say, Liv, I can look after you a lot of the time. Something goes wrong. It's going to take 60 hours to get you out to a hospital, to a pretty bad hospital. But these risks at the bottom, we can't really exclude. And it's up to you to accept those. And it's sort of informed consent. Liv will go like, okay, Dave's informed me. He's told me what's left. And I'm going to continue. Therefore, I'm giving him my consent and we're going to go ahead with it. So then if I then fuck up down the line and something goes wrong, then it's normally down to negligence on my part. So I just got to be on the ball. I just could constantly ask myself, what if? What, what if something happens now? Can I make it better? Can I go, can I, can I make it safer? Or is it going to change the show too much? Is it going to sh- change what we're trying to film? Because we can't just wrap live up in cotton wool and put her on camera no. and look wrong. So we're still trying to achieve that goal of creating a good film. So, and, and how, how are you able to live in the moment? I mean, so are you living in the moment? What kind of moment are you living in? If you're asking yourself, what if, and, and stuff, do you get to the end of the day, you find you're physically done? Like, No, no, not at all. Like, it's not, it's just, it's a small sort of, you're just constantly risk assessing. It sounds very dry saying risk assessments, but that's pretty much what you're doing. And all of us do it in life. We just make these small yeah, yeah. decisions on the way, like, could I make this safer? And I think if we were doing like, a big scene i think the the big question to ask is that if okay if someone died now could i stand up in front of that person's family and go i did everything i could for that person yeah if the answer is no then i've got to question that answer and i've got to question why i'm saying no can i turn that into a yes if i can then freaking make it a yes if i can't then that's the point to go to that person and go look look this is pretty sketchy Should, yeah. can, do you have to do this or is there another way yeah. Because at the end of the day, what, what we're doing on these shows is I'm just advising. I'm just advising the director. And, uh, and it's the production that take my advice and take that responsibility. So even though I'm carrying a lot of responsibility, at the end of the day, it's the production that's carrying that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, like, um, in my mind, um, I'm going to the Congo, I'm going, or you, I'm going to areas that have a history of civil war uh, and, and even borders a country with civil war, uh, the illegal trafficking of um, ivory, etc., poaching, dangerous, dangerous fucking people. That's probably my, as a person who's never travelled to Africa, um, has never really travelled anywhere dangerous in the world, really. Um, and I know most people listening to this show won't have, really. <laughs> you know, what, I, I suppose my first real question in that in that regard would be have you ever been to a situation where look we are going to a fucking dangerous area this these are the things that could happen and have nearly happened yeah i suppose so yeah there are um firstly just to go go back a bit because it's a bit of a bugbear of mine it's like when you perceive somewhere to be dangerous it is yeah perceived idea and that is built because humans are freaking great at absorbing information our gut call it our gut we absorb information every little bit we see be it a movie a computer game a newspaper a magazine yeah. the daily mail we're absorbing all that information true or false we're absorbing it and then it's up to our head to adjust it but if the head doesn't have any edu- education on a particular country how can we adjust that reality back to normality we can't yeah but i don't blame people for thinking say Iran is a dangerous place, or Iraq is a dangerous place. I don't, I don't blame them. Um, but if it would be possible for then those people to dig further and research and then 
suddenly come up with all these beautiful, glowing, positive stories that could adjust that perceived idea. It won't go back to normal, but it will get a little bit more normal. Then they won't actually think that these places are dangerous anymore. And it's yeah. an interesting thing happened to me. I was working between Egypt and Iraq in 2014-2015 I was working in Kurdistan on oil and gas just when ISIS went sort of kicking off and um, when I was going there my friends in the CNI desert were going oh Dave don't go to Iraq you're going to get killed and then I'd go to Kurdistan I'd work in Iraq and then I'd say to them I'm going back to the CNI and they're going oh Dave don't go to CNI you're going to get killed and then and then me and my wife went off to Sudan to prep a climbing trip and then both of them were a bit like Huh? Should I be worried about Sudan? Ooh, ooh, don't know. Dave, be careful in Sudan. Just be careful there. And it's like, it's fine. It's just our, that perceived idea. Yeah, I was in China yeah. in 2011, and someone there was really concerned about me returning back to the UK because I think there was the London riots at the time. And all they saw on their TV was just fires and protests and violence. And they were really fearful for me just going back to the UK. It's like, it's, it's, there's nothing going on. So we're really yeah. at the mercy of what we see. So once now that's out of the way, and now we can talk about sort of places I've been and, and sticky situations I've ended up in. Yeah, no, no. I mean, because I, I totally take your point, and I've and I've I've been there. I've, I've I exactly know what you're talking about. I mean, I've a tiny, tiny example of me being volunteering with dogs in in Nepal and in Thailand. Mm-hmm. It's like people go, "Oh, did you? Weren't you afraid of getting bitten? Blah blah blah, etc. Mm-hmm. etc." Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, no, definitely it is perception is yeah, is, yeah very interesting. interesting. I was taking some I guided some kids to Cambodia and the parents the parents came for like a parent meet the guide evening sort of thing and asked those questions. And I read them a um an FCO sort of report on a country and I read it to them and it had loads of negative stuff. It had things about crime and it had things about um, violence, political protests. And I asked them, I was like, how does that make you feel? And they all went, oh, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. And I was like, well, the, the, the FCO report I've just read out to you is, is what Australia writes about the UK. And so what I read to you was just a report on the UK. And they were like, oh. And then I read the Cambodia report and it all sort of like, oh, that's, well, that makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's a great great idea. Yeah, yeah, that that is such a great idea. I love that. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I I totally get it. But um, yeah, I I mean, I've it's the the world is just it's like you said. If you want to read it like that, the world is a fucking dangerous place. Um, everywhere. Don't step out. Don't step out your front door. Then you know, (laughs) I. What are you gonna do? Don't yeah. eat that can of baked beans. It might have something in it. Uh, that's, yeah. that's an extreme example. Always have baked beans. They're wonderful. Um, <laughs> but you're talking about sticky situations because, um, and without obviously, you know, touching on that that whole, oh, we're in Africa, therefore, you know, or we're in Sudan, therefore it must be terrible. Um, there, there must be situations where it has, the shit has, has hit the fan and you've had to like jump in a bit. Yeah, it must be. I mean, we've had some very close calls. Um, we're driving from Iran into Pakistan. And um, the big advice there is that don't drive that road. Once you cross the Iranian border into Pakistan, don't drive that road at night because it's very close. To okay, I won't do that. I won't do it. It's a lot, yeah, don't, don't do it. 
there's um, a lot of drugs coming across there, so look out for it. But um, oh really? We were with a group of 28 people doing that, and the thing process was slower and slower and slower. So by the time everybody had cleared immigration into Pakistan, it was getting late. And when we were on that road, it was pitch black, dark, and we were doing exactly what we were told not to do. And so we were in this position where we'd done the research, looked at it, and we were like, well, this is exactly what we told ourselves not to do. And we're driving along, the road is empty, completely empty. And we saw these headlights coming towards us. We're just saying, like, I was in the cab driver and these other couple of people, we're looking at them, like, ah, that's fine, just give me another car. As the car went past, it was this sort of a Hilux, and in the back of the Hilux was this sort of mounted, I don't know, I don't, I don't know the guns very well, but it probably looked like a big fuck off machine gun mounted down in the back. And then four guys sat in the back all with AKs wrapped up. And we sort of watched in the wing mirrors and we saw the brake lights come on and the vehicle stopped and then turned and started following us. And we were like, well, this is it. This is, this is where it's gonna, this is where it's gonna happen because we ignored our own advice. And so we kept driving and they kept driving. We didn't ultra speed, we didn't stop, slow down, speed up. We just kept going as we were. And they, they kept their distance and carried on. And we got into a, a city called Quetta. Um, and uh, just as we crossed into the city um, boundaries, the car stopped and then turned and drifted off again. So we still don't know who they were. They, they didn't look official, but by their actions, they looked like they were just sort of escorting us. But it, like, it's really close. Uh, I mean, it didn't really hit the fan there, but like, you can imagine things yeah. could have done. If oh, the intent God. of those, those five people in that vehicle were, were malicious and it would have gone wrong. We were yeah. climbing in Iran, climbing up on a big wall on a near a town called Kermanshah. And um, me and my um, the guy that organised those sort of overland climbing expeditions, like called Stig, um, we were climbing, we slept up on a ledge overnight. We climbed so much, it was now dark, so we slept. And um, people in the valley, shepherds, I, I assume, were taking pot shots at our head torches, so they were shooting at us. But again, it wasn't malicious. It wasn't, you turn your head torches off, it stops because they can't see you. You turn your head torches on, they're like, that's the first time in their lives they've ever seen a light on that cliff. Right. They're just going to shoot at it. <laughs> and so it was like pot shots were being taken. But yeah. again, it's not stuff hitting the fan. It's just, there's a, there's a, re, there's a logical reason for, for what was going on there. Yeah. It just sounds like to me, like you've had like, um, you're painting a really good picture for just fucking getting on with your life and traveling and following your dreams because very rarely does it, I know it's just one example, one life we're talking about here, but you've also interacted with hundreds and hundreds of people and it doesn't, you know, it just seems like, that. why wouldn't you, why yeah. wouldn't you just but get yeah. when we can, when we're allowed to again, to just travel yeah. I mean, don't, don't don't ignore FCO advice and don't don't ignore the, the sort of negative stories you hear because they're, they're obviously a, there's a reason for them. Yeah. You've got to balance them. I mean, there are there are bad people out there, and you can get if you don't have your wits about you, if you don't have common sense, you can end up in deep water. Yeah, I got a friend who told I me that. The, the bigger dangers, I would say, is just road travel. In fact, most of the the the, the near misses I've had have just been car accidents car crashes like we were we were driving that that trip i was just talking about when we drove to hong kong we were driving up through india so packed vehicle we converted we, we, we built this vehicle ourselves so we stretched out the wheelbase built up this conversion the back of the truck was a climbing wall like we welded in old coach seats 
on the top level the bottom level was like full of lockers and all the kit and spares and food and climbing kit and we drove that way um and we were in india driving up to nepal into Kathmandu, and uh, an indian bus overtook and was coming towards us it would have been a head-on collision so we had to drive off the road and drive along the edge of the road on this forest and the front of our vehicle was sort of had a sliding roof and the, the corners were sort of angled and a limb of a tree slid along this corner and then halfway down the vehicle instead of being angled it went back to right angles and it hit the steelwork and just ripped the roof off there was one seat that was available no one in it and a 50 mil tube of a tube of steel got pushed through the seat but that was it there were a few knocks on head there were a few scrapes but that was it we lost the roof no one hurt so in true sort of British style, we just like brewed up a, had a cup of tea, had a cup of tea and some biscuits. Oh and, my God. And we were like, I was looking through photos recently. Sadly, the guy that organized all these trips um, passed away a couple of weeks ago. And so all the, all the people who had been part of that trip and other trips all sort of been sharing stories and photos. And so it's all very, very recent now, these stories. But we had, mm. I looked at these photos of this accident. And it was carnage. And in India as well, in seconds, there was a ring of people around us, watching us. And we are like hacksawing off the remains of this steel roof, chucked on the side of the road, put, put our possessions back in and carried on driving to Kathmandu. And we were having a discussion that night. And we were like, so what are we going to do? Like, we're lucky to be alive, one. But then we're like, what are we going to do now? We still have to drive across the Friendship Highway, which has like passes up to, I think it's 5,200 metres, definitely over 5,000. I can't remember the exact time. And then down into China in December, it's going to be freezing. And then eight weeks then through China, like we don't have a roof. What are we going to do? And everybody was like, well, we all put in like hundred quid into the pot and we'll build a new roof. I was like, we could do that. Or like imagine in 20 years time when you're sat in your, um, sat in a meeting or having your corporate dinner somewhere and conversation dries up and you're able to recall the story about how you drove across the, the, the roof of the world in like a, a roofless truck holy shit and it was like surely the eight weeks of like freezing hell we're about to go through it's got to be worth that like five minutes of story and that's oh what God, we did we, we drove the rest of the way and it's sort of like it was type two fun at times have you ever heard this type one type two fun so type no one i haven't fun you're fun and you have it's fun at the moment and you're loving it type one fun type two fun is this it's fun when it's over so once, okay, you, once you're done it's fun. Oh, that was really good story. Really good. Loved it at the moment. Wouldn't want to do it again. That's type two fun. And it yeah. goes down a bit further down to type three, type four. It gets pretty dark down there. But um, so that was like type two fun. A lot of the times you're freezing cold, really cold, super, super cold conditions. But it was amazing. It was an incredible God. experience. But it could have easily have gone wrong because road travel is just is is the big danger i'd say it's not the people yeah. not those risks it's the road travel and what what did what were the stars like then at night then what driving around the f- fucking roof of the well, world as you call well, it at night we, just... we always sort of stop driving at night um but i'd imagine they would have been amazing it was quite yeah. cloudy i can't remember how, I, I can't remember how good those stars were like, that's so funny that's like in wayne's world too when they ask um dell <laughs> what was Woodstock like and he goes oh it was cloudy in the morning and in the afternoon the sun came out or something like that <laughs> okay okay then um but um, yeah like 
I just, for the life of me, it's very hard to, oh God, like anybody who's really traveled. I mean, I've met, obviously I've met quite a few people that have traveled in their lives, but no, no one as extensively and as intricately and as uh, uniquely as you have. So it's hard to know, like, I, I want to get, get a sense of it and of, of what that's like for you, what it means to you to, 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 to challenge yourself, to go to these new places and 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 not necessarily why you do it, but what it means to you when you're there and in it. I think that is a question. I've, I've done it a lot now, and I think if you'd asked me that in my twenties, I'd have come up with a really beautiful romantic sort of answer for you. But but now <laughs> I'm doing it because it's a job, and I get paid to do it, and I love it. I love my job. I would never change it, like to be paid. So like the, the thing with Liv, where we went to the Congo and like eight weeks at a time, living in a tiny forest, sorry, a tiny village in a forest with these beautiful, incredible, incredible people. Like I would never have got to have done that by myself. Never. Yeah. As a as a, as a traveller by yourself, you just wouldn't have the chance to do it. Too expensive, but you don't have the, the knowledge or you can't get the permissions to, to do that. So I'm very, very thankful for traveling at the moment because I'm doing some incredible things through TV and through, through yeah. my work. But it's sort of, I guess it's lost a little bit of that romantic notion now. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, you've been doing it for for a number of years now, I guess. I'm just, I think I'm coming from a point of like in a fascination and jealousy as well because um, I'd love to do some more traveling, my friend. I'd love to do it. Um, but if, if could we pivot slightly, pivot um, and, in, and talk about... Um, maybe a moment of, of, of your life. A moment um, of my life. Uh, yeah, that's, that has most significance. And not like the only moment, because there are obviously many, many moments, but yeah, there are. One, that you, yeah. one that you'd be willing to share. I think it's very easy to believe in fate, isn't it? If you, if you look at where you are now and where you were, say, 20 years ago, like how intricate all those decisions are that got you there. You think, oh, it has to be fate. But they are just, it's just chance. And yeah. I guess one of those, like... Two people I've met in my life, actually both are, are both called Stiggy. So one of them was the guy that designed these trips, Stuart Marlowe. We all called Stig because he looked a little bit rough, a bit like Stig of the Dump. Stig of the Dump, yeah. <laughs> called Stiggy. And through those climbing expeditions and through the sort of, especially when he asked me to work on that sort of transglobal one, the experience it gave me, I was only 24 when I started those. And so the experience he gave me at a young age and the trust he installed in me and gave me um, was massive and I'm very very thankful for that and so that moment of meeting him and that moment of I guess reading that climbing article in university which said climbers wanted to go to Kenya that was a really important point in my life because it opened mm. up my 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 life would be completely different now if it wasn't for that article for that yeah so you like and got then, on the conveyor belt yeah yeah it did like it opened a door it just it was, it's not even really a sliding doors but it just pushed me on a different trajectory so so separate from the other one it's yeah you can't can't really compare so that was a massive a massive point and then the other stiggy that i got to know was uh, a guy called robert stigwood who was like the simon cowell of the 60s and 70s he used to manage the bgs and uh, cream oh um, wow Jesus Christ, superstar, Evita, uh, <laughs> Greece, all of this is his. And I was coming home from school 
in my A-levels and my mate was like, oh, there's a job doing silver service waitering or something. Do you want to make some money? I was like, yeah, I'll come work with you. And we did that. And he had a Christmas party. He used to live on the Isle of Wight, this guy, Robert Stigwood. He used to have RSO, RSO Records. It's like records with a red cow in the label. That, that was it. Okay. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was putting on a Christmas party for all his staff members and needed other staff to work. And so me and my mate went along and, and served drinks and food at this beautiful manor house in the Isle of Wight. And um, we just left our numbers. And so we started working for this, for Robert Stigwood on a sort of holiday basis. As I went for university, when I was home, um, I would I would go and work for him. And sort of through that, through sort of the relationship we built up and, and the trust we had between us, there was a job that he asked me to do. We were opening up Saturday Night Fever on Broadway. And um, we went to New York for six weeks, seven weeks, I worked with him. And like, he called me his PA, but I had no PA skills at all. None <laughs> of that. All it was was that he trusted me and I knew how he operated. And he just wanted someone alongside him that he could trust to help him with his day-to-day life. And it was sort of that trust we had sort of came to fruition in the way that then he was very generous and helped me in those sort of, when I was off on a new climbing expedition or was going somewhere, then he would contribute towards those. And so it wasn't just sort of working on, especially the time in university, I was lucky enough that I didn't just have to work in bars to make money. It was the relationship I built up with this, the other Stiggy. Yeah, what a lovely guy. I paid the way to then meet this other Stiggy, the second Stiggy, to then launch <laughs> further. So it was like a catapult of Stiggies. They just like pushed <laughs> me on further. And it was through these two incredible people that I would say I'm here today. Yeah, definitely. That's wonderful, man. Thanks. So, that's really sweet. Thanks for that. That's really, that's it's great to acknowledge other people's um, involvement and, in, and importance. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge that. I mean, yeah. it's funny because I was actually... Yeah, you know, you've you've listened to my chat with Liv, and and she's very much into those sliding doors moments, or and what have you, and mm-hmm. and the importance and recognizing that, and and how things could have been different, and what have you, it's, it, especially with people that have have gone on journeys like like you have. Yeah. Good goodness me! Like, what else is? I think that things things would have been very different if I hadn't have met those two people. But I also think that if you have the mindset or say adventurous travel at a young age, then you keep on making these decisions. And it may seem like a 50-50 decision, but that sort of inner sort of character will always slightly pat you towards the decisions that will put you on that further path of adventurous travel. So I think Mm -hmm. that even though you may miss those sliding doors moments, I think they'll come back round again because that's your character. And you're always subconsciously going to be choosing those decisions, choosing those moments, choosing those activities that then put you back on track to be yeah. there. Well, so maybe, can I, can I, like, sorry, it may, may be slower and take more time, but it will, I think it will come back around again. Yeah. I was just going to ask one, one final, I thought that thought question, a thought question. Mm, that's a, that's a new one. Um, yeah hardly it's more like because you clearly you've got the most itchiest feet in the world what how are you dealing because of the worms in them and the parasites (laughs) yeah the uh oh my god those pig those pygmy worms whatever they're called they are burrow into your toes oh my god um 
How are you dealing with with lockdown then? I mean, in terms of the globe hopping that you've been you've done, and and clearly your <clears throat> ambition or ambitions to to travel and your job. I mean, how has it affected you um, mentally more than anything? Mentally, it's it's all right. I think it'd be easier if there was an end in sight. It would be easier to manage because then it would just be like a four month weekend, and you'd be able to just enjoy life and it's lovely being home like i'm never I'm normally like away for eight nine months of the year so to have this prolonged period at home where we me and wife can work on diy jobs together and just have that sort of bit of normality is, is lovely yeah, um, yeah of course being locked down and not being able to travel means i'm not working so it's the sort of the stresses that that brings but if you look at it in a bigger picture i mean it will stop it will fix itself eventually and I think with my job and with TV, there there will be work that will come round again. And so it's, I just see it as in those, you know, you're watching a movie and it's quite a sort of a form, formulaic sort of picture you get in Hollywood movies where there's that build up, there's the high bit and there's the low bit, which is normally around like 40 minutes before the end. And then it peaks up again, 20 minutes before the end and it bursts and continues and it's great. And so often these sort of lulls and these sort of moments when you can't really do what you want to do for any reason, be it accident or something's happened or lack of money or pandemic then it's just one of those moments in in that film where it's that lull it's that lull but the lull just makes the the peaks a little bit better yeah yeah so i think if, if you see it in that way as just that lull in 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 the film or the book you're reading that even the greatest stories they're the greatest people that have lived have had these lulls they talk about then yeah. it, it's all manageable yeah. yeah. No, I, th- I think also you you sound like you're drawing a lot from, or at, le- at least it's kind of like impossible not to draw from the experiences that you've you've had from the past to deal with the current your current situation. Yeah, I mean that's that's who we are, isn't it? I mean every every moment, every every action that the decision I've made has made me who I am today. Mm. It's decisions my thoughts i have today because of what i've gone through in the past yeah as, as they are with you yeah i'm i'm quite interested actually when you said you you know you you spend so much time away from your wife i mean because like palin does that doesn't he when he he palin fucking everyone that does travel documentaries that goes away for any length of time that, that must like you know that must suck because i mean obviously you're having to do it but not having to but you're doing it because it's it's you it's who you are and that's also has happens to be the wonderful thing you can make money from doing so therefore you you do it um but still like when you're sat around a campfire in whereversville um you know there must be moments where you're sort of slightly oh jesus christ what i I miss my wife yeah yeah of course yeah i mean it's an obvious thing to say of course but it's sometimes the most obvious things that have you know but also that's that's the way we've always lived our lives we um we met in egypt and we lived together in, in a little house up in the CNI mountains for a while and then moved back to the UK. But we've always been traveling and always been moving. And I've always had those jobs where I've, I've left and gone away and come back and gone away and come back. And, and, on, and um, my wife's a very, very keen traveler as well. So she's, she's gone away as well. And she's done her own thing and gone off to explore the world. And so I guess that's the way we've always been. So it's, it's, easier, it's easier to adjust and easier to continue in that way. Because that's what you've always known. Well, you've got like so, a very good. We miss each other. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, but you've got a really good understanding, like an an umbilical, an, an, kind of like an, an invisible cord between you two. That doesn't matter how far apart you are, you've kind of got an under, a, a understanding, a security between you two, which is quite cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, bloody bloody unique, Dave. Very very unique, but in a really cool way. They say that I tried to get insurance um, last year, particularly loss of earnings insurance. It's like, okay, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to see. And no one would touch me. No one oh, really? would touch me. So they just don't understand me. So I found out yeah. this one company. And it's sort of like Jack the Lab was on the end of the phone. And it's like, yeah, I'll sort you out. I insure astronauts and I insure special forces. I'll sort you out. <laughs> I was like, great, you sound perfect. So I explained what I did, did all the questionnaires. And he was like, all right, I'll, um, I'll get back to you tomorrow. And there was a phone call tomorrow. He said, uh, and his tone had changed. It was like, Dave, all right, um, yeah, you, we can't ensure you. And I was like, hang on, I thought, I thought you did astronauts. He yeah. said, yeah, yeah, we do. But um, people just don't understand you. There's nothing <laughs> like, like, I mean, there are other people that do, like, there are, there are a team of us that are like, consultants that you often come across or you hear about and we all sort of it's a very very small world and sort of work that i'm in but yeah. there are there are there are others that do this it's just in the t in the eyes of an insurance company i wasn't insurable because they just don't understand i just don't fit that norm and i've come Dude. across before where like as soon as you step off the train of society and what people deem to be normal and you just want to i don't know file some taxes or you don't have a real address or you don't have a mobile phone at that time because you're living in a raft or whatever it's really hard to operate in the society that we live in because everything just hangs on what you should you, sh you should be normal you should be yeah. that person that has all these details why not oh yeah, no exactly something wrong with you let's just discard you yeah but i think that is quite a, a, a cool tagline for your website dave lucas uninsurable i mean you know yeah it could could you know uh, uh persuade people not to work with you but also quite dangerous quite cool you know i see where you're going with it but yeah possibly not the best <laughs> <laughs> i like it and maybe something to talk about in a pub yeah not. or how about the autobiography Dave Lucas, the uninsurable life of Dave Lucas. Maybe you know, I'm just spitballing. I'm, I'm just sounding a little bit like Partridge now, but I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I've gone no, part. Yeah, I've gone good. Partridge. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, mate. Pretty happy where I am now. Yeah. yeah working yeah. for TV. I worked for a metal a metal band a couple of years. Oh ago. yeah, no. I was going to say, is it what band was it again? My Bloody Valentine. No, Bullet for My Valentine. Bullet for my, because I always say my bloody Valentine because that's the Bobby Gillespie band, isn't it? But my bullet for my Valentine, yeah. they, they're like big fucking rock band, and you yeah. you yeah. you tour yeah. manage them. Yeah, yeah, they done those. Like in their in like the them uh, management office, raw power. Like I made them upstairs. Yeah, we yeah. God, no, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're massive, and so yeah. I was able to go on tour with them. So uh, well, how the hell did that come about? <laughs> It's a guy who opened a can of worms down. So I was yeah. working on a shoot, a Jägermeister product placement shoot in Norway. And um, Jägermeister do these ice cold gigs. They're incredible shoots, really good fun. And they do it where they're like, first gig on an iceberg, the coldest gig ever. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, the company most. who often hire me manage and 
produce these shoes. And so they um, they asked me to sort of be the sort of production manager for this one in Norway, where Matt Tuck was invited along to play a gig for his closest and uh, his nearest and dearest sort of friends. And it was going to be air sea land gig. So they in helicopters go up, skydive out the helicopter in tandem. And he was playing a song under canopy, land, jump in a boat across the fjord, play a song, get cool. to the other side, get on dog, dog sleds and do another yeah. song behind it on a dog sled. And they're all wired with, up so they can hear and stuff. With and some so, we, so I, I sort of, I worked on the shoot and um, managed the shoot <laughs> and the sort of the operations of it. And as, as Matt Tuck was leaving the um, airport, he was like, Dave, um, do you want to be my road manager? And I'm like, I don't, I don't really like music. And I don't really know anything about the music. And he's like, so this is the, that's even better. This, he was like, if you could just do what you've just, just done at the last job, I'll be up for it. So that's like, the front guy from the band, is it? Sorry? Matt Tuck is the front guy. The 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 lead. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, and I was like, yeah, I'm down with it. And I think, you know, that's a good rule to go by in life. If you say yes more often than no, you, you can end up doing some fun stuff. And so I went, uh, went to Royal Power and talked to them and they were like, yeah, down for it. So the tour manager was still there. And I, so as a position of raw, um, road manager, it was sort of like an assistant in a way. So I dealt with uh, travel accommodations, food, guest list, um, press, meet and greets, that sort of stuff. It was great. I mean, so we did that. Europe and UK Venom tour. How did fucking how do you deal with all the uh, this the, the the nonsense of rock and roll compared to like fucking? It's not. It's not. It's, it's, um, oh, some of the trips I've been on have been way worse. Yeah. Really? I mean, these, these guys have been going for at that point probably 10, 11 years. So some of that nonsense of what you'd expect was not as apparent. Some of the crew were still like that. Yeah. But it wasn't. But it's, yeah, it's, it's just people. It's, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's one of those valuable lessons of travel and valuable lessons of expeditions and guiding is that you learn to deal with people in quite challenging environments and quite challenging situations. Yeah. And if you can learn from that, and they're, they're very transferable lessons and you can yeah. take them into whatever industry you want. And then it's just people. It's just understanding what people need, what people want and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I don't know the technical the the technical terms of what they're doing i don't do any of that but if i don't need to then really it's just just my day job i'm just keeping people safe and happy yeah challenging environments so they can do what they're trained to do yeah man uh, yeah it does you're definitely a yes man that is that is abundantly clear that you are the most yesy yes man i've ever met that's a good thing to be in life yeah some some there, there are some no's but they you have to yeah back them up do do you want to have a bath with an anaconda no i don't want to have a bath with an anaconda this morning thank you but i don't want that experience just leave me leave me the fuck alone unless there's a good reason yeah um yeah but i'm I'm probably gonna have to call it there i'm afraid yeah no no do it no it's been fun it's been lovely but I will say this, and I'm not I'm not coming on to you. Look, got a wedding ring and a kid, okay, but you have such a kind face. Like you, oh, you just seem like such you seem like such a nice bloke. Like I I think I can I can oh, definitely I've got you. Hook I've got, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually a, I'm a real asshole, Will. 
Yeah, I've got a bag full of heads uh, right next to me. <laughs> um, that's more psychopathic. But anyway, um, no, but I was going to say, like, I can imagine traveling with you. You know, you stumble across people when you're traveling. I think we we touched on this earlier. You can tell with very quickly who's full of shit and who isn't. Yeah. And I've, I've definitely got that nailed now. I haven't traveled properly in about three or four years, but you still... As soon as you touch down another country, particularly in, in volunteering sector, you just learn the billy bullshitters and the fucking boring bastards that just dribble on and on and on at you. I can definitely see if we were in the back of a truck together, mate, volunteering, I'd probably gravitate towards you. You've got a good face. You've got a good face. It's, it's, it's good trust, trustworthy. That's right. You've got to look out for the good shapes. <laughs>